0: So here's the deal, everybody. We just absolutely love producing as much content as possible for Film and Whiskey Nation. But if our regular episodes aren't enough for you, then you can head on over to Patreon.com/slash/FilmWhiskey, sign up for one of our memberships, and you will get a slew of extra content for your listening pleasure. Check us out on Patreon.com/slash/FilmWhiskey. In 1980, director Stanley Kubrick and star Jack Nicholson gave the world a
1: chillingly arduous journey into the depths of a man's madness. In 2023, we take our first trip to Taiwan to try a single malt whiskey. The film is the shining. The whiskey is Cavalon Classic.
0: More we'll review than both. This is the Film and Whiskey
1: Podcast. Welcome to the Film and Whiskey Podcast, where each week we review a classic movie and a glass of whiskey. I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And this week we are pivoting away from the films of Japan and Akira Kurosawa and into a director that is going to elicit some very spicy takes from old Bob here. And that is Stanley (laughs) Kubrick, more affectionately known by Brad as Stanley Kubrick. I do. Love, I, I just really love Am it. Just saying, I have always heard it said Kubrick. I really want to just make a really crappy Photoshop where I like make him into a cube <laughs> shape. It's just like the same or, picture side by side. Stanley Kubrick or just Stanley Kubrick. In all of our in all of our media, his last name is just spelled Q dash brick. <laughs> That's it. That's the one. All right, Brad, before we really dive into The Shining today, which, by the way, folks, is the movie we're talking about, I want to get my my own personal biases on the table about Stanley Kubrick, and then we're going to get both of our personal biases on the table about horror movies, because we have a lot to unpack here today, <laughs> man. So I was let- going to say, I saw this movie on a schedule, and I was like,
0: Bob, like, I know that this will garner listeners, But they're never going to listen to our podcasts again, because we're all we're going to do is talk about how you don't like Stanley Kubrick
1: and I don't like horror films. And you also are not a huge fan. (laughs) I am not a huge fan. Let me let me get my Kubrick stuff out of the way first. So, Brad, I know that you don't really have an extensive background with Kubrick. Uh, He only made 16 films, uh, credited films on IMDb and even fewer feature length films. So. He's a guy that took a lot of time in between projects, especially after he became a really uh, like a household name as a director. With Stanley Kubrick, it there's just something within me. And I think it's like growing up in the Midwest and growing up, you know, lower middle class to poor and having this work ethic and like everyone always thinking that they're better than us coming from Northeast Ohio. I understand that Stanley Kubrick grew up in the Bronx. Like, it's not like he was some elite aristocrat. But there's something about watching Kubrick's movies and then hearing him talk about his own movies and then hearing people fawn over him and treat him as a god. It is like there's just something within me that is just primed to hate this dude in the first place. <laughs> you and, just have a desire to stick it to the man. I do, man. And and then on top of that, there really is a point and I talked about this in our 2001 episode where if I'm not vibing with one of his movies, I don't like the fact that he is one of the very few directors ever that gets an automatic pass. That if there's something enigmatic or not explained or cold or obtuse about his movies, that it's always assumed that it's a problem with the viewer, not a problem with Kubrick. And for a guy who is known for his super meticulous research, he spent years researching every movie he ever did to the point of madness. It's like, you know what? Maybe you could just make better movies if you're going to spend that much time on it. <laughs> like- you hear that? Make better movies, Kubrick. So I'll say this. Kubrick has made some of the best movies I've ever seen. I almost always gravitate towards the films that are not regarded as his masterpieces, though. Like, and that's like much, what Bob. Well, I really like. I actually think the best movie he ever made was *A Clockwork Orange*, which is a movie that we, spoiler alert, will never watch on this podcast because I don't <laughs> know that I could put you through that, Brad. I, yeah, all, all I know about that film is the
0: the picture of the dude with his eyes like. Yeah, yeah, that's yes, uh, yeah. It's a that... great.
1: It's a great movie. Uh, Mm -hmm. I don't I don't vibe with 2001. The Shining is a movie that until this watch, Brad, I was always like, man, F that movie. Like, I I can't get down with it. (laughs) He has just always seemed like the definition of not even pretentiousness because he has an undeniable technical mastery. But Mm -hmm. it's like the 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 cult of Kubrick and the mythos of Kubrick makes me angry at his movies even before I watched them. It's like his reputation precedes him, and I have to fight against that reputation to ever appreciate anything of his.
0: So if... uh, How long did did Kubrick make films? What Like, what
1: year did his last film come out? His last film was Eyes Wide Shut in 1999. It came out like a month month or two after he died. Um, Okay, so this is perfect then.
0: Yeah. So if... If Kubrick is the the father in this story, Christopher Nolan is the obvious son because you hate the Nolan bros. (laughs) Who's who's the grandfather in this situation? That's what I want to know. Interesting. What's another
1: fan base that you're just like not down with? It's like a, a John Ford. The only filmmaker that gets that gets that kind of not unearned respect, but like. Adulation is like Wells, Orson Wells. Who? I mean, you know. Oh, there you go. My man made Citizen Kane like he deserves it. But then you watch like <laughs> some of the other Wells films and I'm like, okay. I understand that he wasn't able to scrape together, you know, he didn't have 2 dimes to rub together, but in this particular instance it shows and I don't know that I, I don't know why we can't mention that, you know? <laughs> uh, so anyway, I have gone 300 plus episodes on this podcast, Brad, and we've only ta- talked about Kubrick one time with 2001 And I just really feel like if you're going to come at Kubrick, you kind of have to solidify your bona fides as a reviewer of movies. Kubrick and I have a very contentious relationship, but I was not going to drop all these hot (laughs) takes in the first season of our show. Now that we're in season seven, I'm like, folks, you know me, you know what I like and what I don't like. I feel like I can finally live into my true self here. Mm, your true self i mean i think you you kind of uh tipped your hat a
0: little bit when you gave 2001 like a six out of ten six and a half baby <laughs> six and a
1: half. One of the most universally beloved movies ever yeah.
0: 6.5 i don't know if i'd use the word beloved i would i would use the words highly regarded sure. i don't know if people like love that movie now, you'd be surprised man the the yeah, criterion you, bros are yeah. everywhere
1: <laughs> You you run in higher circles than me, my friend. (laughs) Speaking of living into your truest self, Brad, you and I are not generally big horror movie people. No, no. Tell me a little bit about that. Tell me about your personal distaste for or aversion to horror.
0: Yeah, my aversion to horror. I honestly don't know exactly where it starts because I did not watch horror films growing up. So it's not like I had like a bad reaction to them. Uh, if I'm if I'm really reflecting well, I, I know that I've heard my mom tell stories about uh, you know one of my aunts and uncle where they showed their daughter back in like the early eighties when she was like two years old poltergeist. Mm. Obviously, an incredible movie to show your Mm two-year-old sure uh and and they talked about how she was like 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 genuinely could not sleep for like four months and so maybe that's a part of it like my parents discussed uh, of horror films i think that when i have watched a few horror films they just mess me up man i i mean i remember watching vertigo when i was like 14 And that messed me up a little bit. Right. Which I wouldn't even describe as a horror film, really. No. But like the idea of this dream that it just messed me up. Yeah. I I did not enjoy it. I think that as I grow older, I realize and this is getting into my spirituality and and religion a little bit. I do believe in spiritual forces in the world. Mm -hmm. Like Like, I don't think that physicality the physical world is the only thing that exists Mm -hmm. i do think that there are spiritual forces i think some of them are out there for our good and i think a lot of them are out there for our evil for our bad that they want to mess us up and horror films just seem like too easy of a conduit Mm -hmm. to uh channel some of that grossness so Our that's me, man,
1: (laughs) friend of show, Josh Larson, the host of the film spotting podcast and, uh, you know, fellow believer has just written a book. It's called Fear Not Colon uh, Christian Appreciation of Horror. And it's all about, you know, looking at horror films from a Christian perspective. And we are going to have Josh on the podcast here in a few weeks to talk about the book and to kind of present him with, you know, our own misgivings and unease with horror films. Brad, I share a lot of the same Beliefs you do about horror movies and I think that defenders of horror will say like on you know on the molecular level of horror it, a there's there's a fun to being scared if you're into that sort of thing I'm not mm-hmm. but b yeah. horror shines a light on what is actually evil in the world in a way that like let's not leave it in the darkness let's confront it head on and I think that for a lot of people they appreciate those elements of it. I'm not one of those people like I'm just going to be honest with you. I went to see a horror movie with one of uh, our mutual friends a couple weeks ago, Brad, Mm, and it's this it's this new movie called The Last Voyage of the Demeter. And it is basically Dracula on a boat and (laughs) it looked like fun horror. And so in my mind, there's like fun horror and then there's mean horror. What's a a popular example of fun horror? See, I think fun horror can still be kind of mean to its characters. Like, it can really dispatch of characters in horrific ways. But what I think of... So, like, like Final Destination? Yes, that's a fun horror. I think any of the sequels to Halloween, once you get into, like, Halloween 4, Halloween 5, Halloween H20... Like Michael Myers will just pick up like a broomstick and then impale someone with it. And you're just like, yeah, that's more of that, please. You know, That's, that's, that's a fun impaling. I think that mean horror like this movie in particular, it was so vicious in its kills. And there was such a sense of dread and hopelessness and nihilism. And it was 1030 at night. I was really tired. So it hit like midnight. The movie's two thirds of the way over. Dracula is pursuing a kid on this boat and I'm like as a father of young kids I'm like I'm not I can't do this man I never Mm -hmm. walk out of movies I left this movie and I will say I might go back and watch the end of that movie but I will be doing it this is like the one time that I endorse watching movies on my phone because there is such a sense of like remove that like I feel a distance from the movie it's not as immersive it doesn't affect me psychologically as much and I think that's kind of where I'm at with horror, man. It's just it's really hard for me to put myself in an immersive dark room with a horror movie anymore.
0: Yeah. And I think that's the key thing. Like emotions are already hard enough to regulate in our daily lives to work through why we're responding to people the way we are at work, or our spouses, our kids. Like it's already hard enough to figure out why I feel the way I feel. I don't need to just pile on top of that fear, terror, like a desire for safety in an unsafe place. Like, mm-hmm. I, I'm just I'm just not. Uh, yeah. Real life is already hard enough. Yep. I don't, I don't want to go. And and it's interesting because we've talked extensively throughout the history of the podcast about how, you know, in general, movies kind of fit one of two categories it's either going to entertain you or it's going to be something that's like deep and profound meaningful and a lot of the best movies can combine both of those things right like you, you watch lord of the rings and you are immensely entertained and then sam gives his speech at the end of the two towers and you're just like oh my gosh like my my life is better because i watched hmm, this hmm. horror doesn't check either box for me it is not entertaining and it's not meaningful. And so, what, like, yeah, what am I doing here?
1: <laughs> what are you doing here? Because we're here to talk about the 1980 film The Shining. And we've seen yeah, a the horror, horror film by Stanley Kubrick. <laughs> so I'm glad we got all of our qualms out on the table here. This is the first of three Kubrick films we will be watching for this mini series. Uh, and it's the only one that I would categorize as a horror film. So. Let's just jump right in, man, and in order to do that, we need to get to our first segment of the day, which we call Brad Explains. Brad's gonna give us the movie plots with only 60 seconds ticking on the clock, so let's go ahead and hear your take with this little segment that we call Brad Explains. Brad Explains is the part of the podcast where Brad breaks down the plot of the film that he has just seen, often for the first time. Brad, was this your first time with The Shining? It was my absolute
0: first time. Interesting, wow, yeah, you, you know what? Honestly, was my favorite part of the movie. I'll just <laughs> give it right off the bat because it's the opening scene. I, I love the opening scene, the the helicopter shots, mm-hmm. but the opening, the do 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 do, yep. do 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 do. That is one of the best, like, musical sequences in a film mm-hmm. ever. Mm-hmm. It's incredible.
1: Yeah, and I, I really want to get into talking with you about this, but I don't want to step all over Brad Explains. So uh, you have 60 seconds on the clock, Brad, to spoil everything about this movie that you can. We do give a spoiler warning on this podcast. The movie's 43 years old and it's one of the most popular horror films ever made. So if you don't want The Shining spoiled for you, turn the podcast off at this point. Go watch the movie. Come back and uh, be in dialogue with us. Brad, you have one minute and go. The Shining
0: is a film about the Torrance family, Jack, Wendy and Danny, who end up at the Overlook Hotel somewhere in the Rocky Mountains as caretakers over the hotel as it is closed throughout the winter. They are left all on their own. Jack is. uh, Well, let's go back to Danny. Danny has this ability where he is psychically connected to certain people and the hotel has had horrible events happen in the past, specifically that the previous caretaker murdered his family with an axe. Jack slowly starts to go crazy. He sees ghosts and visions. Danny sees the hotel filling with blood, and Wendy is just along for the ride. Scatman Crothers, one of the best names ever in the history of acting, uh, gets killed because he tries to help Wendy and Danny escape, uh, Jack by the end of the film is chasing Danny through a uh, hedge maze and becomes a part of the hotel after he dies in the cold in one of the worst practical effects shots I've ever seen <laughs> in my life
1: Have you ever seen the meme of Frozen Jack yes Torres before okay and it as soon as the it cut to him I was like
0: that looks horrible I mean just. That was the horror of the film, Bob, was how bad that shot was. <laughs> all
1: right, Brad, before we dive into talking about performances, before we get into the Kubrick of it all, I want to talk about the Stephen King of it all. This is the first Stephen King adaptation we've had on the show, which is kind of surprising because there's That's been not so true. many. Oh, no, we did Misery, right? This yeah, is the misery. second Stephen King adaptation. All right. So that that puts my fears at ease a little bit, but. Stephen King is a very young writer at the point where The Shining comes out. He's had some major success with uh, Carrie and I believe Salem's Lot. And then he comes out with The Shining. And as with a lot of Stephen King's novels, The Shining is a metaphor for King's own life. He struggled with alcoholism and cocaine addiction for a very long time. And this novel was really a manifestation of those deep-seated fears. He really feared becoming his own dad. And you see that in the novel, apparently, a lot more than you do in the movie. I guess there's like an opening scene with Jack Torrance's dad. Um, And the theme of abuse is really prevalent in the novel in a way that it's kind of touched on in the movie, but not as deeply. And so when King sees this movie, Kubrick had kind of kept him at arm's length throughout the production. He brought King in at one point to tell him that he was going to change the whole ending because at the end of the book, The Shining, spoilers for the book, I guess, Jack has a twinge of conscience and basically is able to suppress the spirits from completely taking him over. He allows Wendy and Danny to escape. He runs to the boiler room and overheats it on purpose so that he will destroy the hotel. And the whole thing blows up with him inside of it. And in this movie, that does not happen. And so King is very (laughs) much on record, like hating this movie and hating the adaptation of it. And I think part of it is because... He is Jack Torrance, and he presents Jack Torrance as a sympathetic figure fighting against his own demons, like the the quote unquote spirits, and wanting to not pass those down to his own children. And so when he sees this movie and Stanley Kubrick has made Jack into an irredeemable bastard from the first minute of the movie, like he is just Mm -hmm. such a smarmy, self-interested, arrogant prick the whole film. I think it's pretty obvious why Stephen King doesn't like this movie. Yeah.
0: I mean, he talks about how the purpose of Jack Torrance was to watch a man descend into madness. And he did not like the casting of Jack Nicholson from the start before he ever saw any, you know, footage. Because what
1: is Jack Nicholson famous for at this point, Bob? Well, he was famous for One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Yeah. And Chinatown. What,
0: what, what happens in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest? <laughs> like, he basically was like, if you cast Jack Nicholson, everybody's just going to know that he's going crazy. Right. And he wanted somebody that I think he, he said like a Martin Sheen who could be a family man who has some issues. Mm-hmm. And you can watch him go crazy, you know, slowly slip into madness. Mm-hmm. And I like I read a few of those things before I watched the film. And so maybe that colored my opinion, but
1: I, I, I agree with Stephen King. Interesting. You know, what's funny is I, this movie has received criticism for a long time for not leaning into the uh, physical abuse subplot that it's, it's talked about in like the first 15 minutes of the movie that Jack is an alcoholic, that he came home drunk one night and that he was so upset with something that Danny had done that he tried to yank him and he dislocated his shoulder. And you can tell from the way Shelley Duvall's character is talking about it that she's playing nice and trying to, oh, it was just one of those things. And I love I love Shelley Duvall's performance in this movie so much because you can mm-hmm. see the fear in her eyes from the first moment where you can tell she is a I mean, she's got like battered wife syndrome for lack of a better yep. term for it. Like she has yep. PTSD from living with this guy. And I do think to Kubrick's credit. He doesn't go overboard in making it explicit that this is a movie that's all about, like, the traumatic, you know, psychology of abuse. And maybe he wasn't even that interested in portraying it. But I think that by leaving it kind of as something that hovers over the movie and isn't, like, punching you in the face with its message, I actually really thought this did a great job of using that sort of abuse trauma as the driving thing under undergirding this whole movie. Yeah, 100%. And, and I think that what would
0: have worked better is if he had portrayed uh, Jack Torrance, I, I think a different actor would have been better. I think it would have worked better if he wasn't so angry about the fact that he was sober. Hmm. Like Because they they try to portray it as like, yeah, he hasn't touched a bottle in five months and and it's been good for the family. But you can tell from the very start And I think this is my issue with the movie, like at its core, Jack wants to fall. Oh, yeah. Like from the very moment you meet him, you can tell that he wants to be evil. And I think the film works insanely better as a horror film. And this is, you know, me, the horror hater critiquing how you should do a horror film. But it should it would work better if he truly and you as an audience member believed this man has changed, you know, maybe not perfectly, but he wants to be better for his family and he's being drawn in against his will by this powerful force animating the hotel. Like mm. like tell me that's not way more terrifying. And then sure at the end of it he fights back, has a little twinge of conscience and burns the
1: place down including himself. Like great movie. I'm in. I think this all goes back to like what Kubrick's intention was here though because he talks about how in the book What he really loved was for a long time, you can't tell if the supernatural elements are just what's going on in Jack's head as he just goes crazy or if there's actually supernatural elements. And then and then all of a sudden there's like giant topiaries that come to life and are like chasing people around. And he's like, it it got to the point where like King went overboard in the last part of the book with the supernatural Hmm. elements. And so I think in this movie that that extends not just to the way that he portrays the supernatural as very real. Like the ghosts just look like real people. They're not these like see-through apparitions, but it also goes all the way back to how Jack behaves. And it's almost horrific in a different way that these people that aren't related to him by him as like a nice guy. When you, as an audience member can see from the beginning, like, He's pretending and he's not even very good at it. Like, he just seems like a jackass. And then you get that first scene where he wanders into the empty bar after Wendy has first accused him of abusing their son. And he's pissed off and he goes in the bar and he says, I would sell my soul for a beer. And then, boom, supernatural stuff starts happening to him. Mm -hmm. And the way he talks about his wife and kids in that scene, he he calls Danny. He goes, I love the little son of a bitch. And then I won't even say what he calls his wife in that scene, because it's like one of the worst insults I've ever heard a man call a woman in a movie Mm -hmm. ever. And to me, that's the point where I was like, oh, gosh, like he's not just going crazy. He's not just a mean drunk and an alcoholic. He has he literally hates these people that he is related to and married to. Mm -hmm. And I think that's even to me, it was horrific in a different way, but it didn't work any less effectively. Because then you're scared for them because you know this guy is not fighting against anything. Like, he wants them to die just as much as the hotel does. Yeah.
0: Wholesome, uplifting film. (laughs) Highly recommend to everybody.
1: All right, man. Let's talk about performances. Because I think we can hold off on the Kubrick part of it for a little bit. Do you like Jack Nicholson's performance or not? No. Hmm.
0: No. I, I mean... I say no with the caveat of, like, I recognize that it's still, like, a B, B B-plus performance. And that's not just, like, among Jack Nicholson performances. I mean, like, among all performances, I'm like, yeah, he's Jack Nicholson. He has a unique talent in Hollywood history. Mm. Yes, it is still a good performance. I just feel like there's too many different things going on. And I, I, I never feel convinced by Jack. Hmm. I never feel convinced that this is Jack Torrance. I feel convinced
1: that it is Jack Nicholson being ridiculous. This is exactly what I said about him in A Few Good Men, that he's such a good actor that I am buying that, like, this is the military version of Jack Nicholson, <laughs> like, you know, up on the stand yeah. right now. I never actually buy that Jack Nicholson is a colonel in the, you know, whatever it was, the Navy or whatever. Yeah, Marines. Yeah. So I'm like, I'm with you. I actually think that it's like an A performance until like a very specific point in the movie. And Kubrick does this thing sometimes with his actors, which is really contradictory to who he is as a director. Like he is famous for being the guy that made a hundred takes of Tom Cruise walking through a door because he didn't like the way that his walking looked. But I notice it sometimes in movies like uh, like Paul Thomas Anderson. I think we talked about this with There Will Be Blood that, yes, Daniel Day-Lewis's performance is one of the best performances I've ever seen. But I also think it is like so indulgent and and PTA just leaves the camera running sometimes and lets Daniel Mm -hmm. Day-Lewis like work out, like go to the logical extreme of what he could do in that scene. And then he's like, brilliant, put it in the movie. And it's like you could have yeah. trimmed the last 15 seconds off of that where he was like on the ground moving like a cow or something, you know. <laughs> and in this movie, you kind of get that. Like there are scenes where Nicholson is believably crazy and and intimidating and scary, and then he'll start like sticking his tongue out and going la, la la la. And you're like, "What is this, man?" Like it completely takes me out of the movie. And at the end, you know, when he's chasing Danny around the maze and he has this voice that's just Danny! Daddy, where I it's, go. It's not scary <laughs> it's, anymore, man. Like, it's J- Jeff Bridges and Iron Man. <laughs> you know, I keep thinking of, uh, they did a South Park episode where uh, Stan's dad, Randy, buys the last Blockbuster in town and no one ever comes to <laughs> Blockbuster and so it's like the Overlook Hotel and he goes crazy and he's chasing Stan around and Stan, come back, Stan. <laughs> so like, I can't watch the end of this movie now without thinking about how ridiculous it is to the point where, it's it's no less over the top than the South Park episode is. Yeah. And this is this is kind of a complete aside with movies that I
0: absolutely love. I try to avoid memes about those movies like the plague, because mm. like I can't watch the two towers without seeing Legolas jump up on the rock and say, they're taking the hobbits to Isengard, <laughs> and I can't not hear ga. gah 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 and it drives me nuts because it takes me out of the moment of one of my absolute favorite movies of all time.
1: In fairness, so I, there I, is a uh, there's such a rhythm to the way he says. Oh, they're it's taking the hobbits the, to Isengard. Like it's, it's <laughs> the most perfect thing that YouTube has ever come up with. Yeah, for sure.
0: God, that video is so good, but. I hate, man, I hate when movies get ruined because it's like genuinely really funny stuff. But I'm going to, you should send me that South Park clip because I 100% am okay (laughs) if if this movie I'll never
1: watch again is ruined. On the other hand, you've got Shelley Duvall, who is a pretty famous actress at this point. She's worked a lot with the director, Robert Altman. She won Best Actress at Cannes like a year before she signs on to this movie. And then Stanley Kubrick puts her through the freaking ringer. Like, knew that she had to get to such a hysterical, emotional pitch that he treated her like on the set of the movie. And, you know, there's a clip of him telling the crew, like, don't sympathize with Shelly. And uh, she basically had like a mental breakdown on the set of this movie. And it's really sad to see because she still struggles with mental health issues now. And, um, you know, part of me is like, I don't think you can actually blame Stanley Kubrick for being the root cause of that. But part of me wants to, because I just, probably, <laughs> I don't know. It probably it, didn't help. It didn't help, you know? And uh, there's actually like this fun little story, not fun at all, but Kubrick's daughter <laughs> was shooting behind <laughs> the scenes footage. Fun horror. Fun horror. <laughs> Kubrick's daughter was shooting behind the scenes footage for this movie and edited it down into a little featurette. And all of the clips of him talking to Shelly behind the scenes are are included in that. And Kubrick himself saw those clips juxtaposed against clips where he was being really nice to Shelley Duvall and decided that for the narrative of this mini documentary, it would be better to cut out all those scenes where he's being nice because he thought it was a better story if he was only portrayed as like this vicious tyrant. And so Shelley Duvall has said it wasn't as bad as people make it out to be, but it seemed pretty freaking bad, man. And it was made worse by the fact that this movie came out and was really divisive and didn't get great reviews. And it was nominated for Worst Director at the Razzie Awards along with Worst Actress. And they just a couple years ago, the people at the Golden Raspberry Awards rescinded that nomination because of all the stuff that's come to light about his treatment of her and basically said, like, we're we're sorry that we perpetuated this idea that she's terrible in this movie because she is. By far the best part of this movie. Like I don't. Yeah. I don't know that there's anyone that even comes close to how good she is in this movie. Do you think that Damien Chazelle like heard that
0: story, watched the featurette, and was like, "I'm gonna make a drumming movie <laughs> with this," like where this is the entire premise? <laughs> Probably, actually, because like, legitimately, like the way we talk about the Shelley Duvall performance is literally just the story of Whiplash, hmm. and if you haven't seen Whiplash. Uh, let me know your address. I'm going to come beat you up like J.K. Simmons <laughs> slaps Miles <laughs> Teller in that movie. Uh, you need to watch Whiplash. It's incredible. But Shelley Duvall's performance here is Miles Teller in Whiplash. Like, he treats her like garbage, but she turns in an incredible performance. Mm-hmm.
1: So, like, is it is it worth it, Bob? That's the question with Kubrick. That's always the question with Kubrick. And I think to some extent, I don't want to say yes, it is, but this is probably, it gets back to my whole thing about Kubrick's always been accused of dropping the abuse subplot in this movie. And I actually think that this might be one of those areas where I want to give him way more credit because this is one of the most believable depictions of, you know, a a woman in fear for her life, living with an abuser that I've ever seen on film. And like here, Is it under the guise of a supernatural horror movie? Absolutely. Does it Mm -hmm. take away from the subtext at all? Not at all.
0: Yeah, I I think that the abuse subtext really shines through. And I think that the character of Danny portrays it in a really terrifying way that, sure, they call it supernatural here. But if you want to believe that children don't check out of reality... When they are faced with abuse mm-hmm. that I like, I don't know what to tell you. Mm-hmm. Like his imaginary friend, Tony is not an imaginary friend. That's the safe place for him to split his personality so he can stop facing abuse. Mm-hmm. And the way that Shelly, Wendy, the mom talks about the abuse to the, the, the doctor, you can tell this isn't hasn't been the only time. Right. That's been the only recorded time.
1: Well, and then there's there's also apparently an inconsistency in the movie where one time they're telling the story, they say it was three years ago. And then the next time they tell it, they say it was six months ago. And so it just implies that this is an ongoing thing. And it's not an accident that Kubrick let that into the movie. So, yeah, I mean, I I really do think Shelley Duvall is incredible. I will say that like almost all of the non horror like dialogue scenes in this movie seem very stilted and like none of the dialogue delivery seems natural from anyone. Yes. Like from anyone. And I don't know if that's intentional or not. It's hard to believe that it's not with as many takes as Kubrick would do. But like everyone seems like it's their first time acting when they're delivering lines of dialogue in this film.
0: It reminds me of the dude who's an actual doctor in Awakenings. Oh, yeah. Remember that? Where it's like, is this your first time acting? Because <laughs> it sure feels like it. And with Shelley and, and Jack Nicholson, they just have zero chemistry, bro. Which is and fine because like, it works for the movie, right? But But here's the thing. It's fine in the sense that, you know, within the movie they are a... Barely holding on marriage But for me it, it felt like It went beyond that mm. where it, It's not just a, like Because he, here's the thing When I think about a strained Marriage that is falling apart But there's still on, str- on Screen chemistry between the leads I think about marriage story mm. Incredible Chemistry between the two of them Even as their life is supposed to be falling Apart Mm-hmm and I just think you're missing that here. And I don't know if it's because, you know, Duvall is so uh, stressed out about the movie that she's just barely clinging on, you know, to her own sanity, let alone try to have on screen chemistry with Jack Nicholson. I, like, I don't know what's going on. For me, it, it didn't work and I noticed it.
1: OK, I'm, I'm never the guy that suggests remaking movies, but if they were to do a Shining remake... How good would Adam Driver be in that Jack Torrance break? Oh, dude. I'm like, oh my gosh. Oh. I didn't even think about that until just now. Because he's physically <laughs> imposing, too.
0: Yes. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. so who are you putting in Shelley Duvall's role? Like, uh, I mean, I guess you're. Out? I guess
1: you're putting Charlotte or Charlotte uh, Scarlett Johansson in there. Which I don't. I don't know if I would do that. <laughs> her, her, her twins. Her unknown twin sister, Charlotte Johansson. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the Bronte sisters. Okay, uh, <laughs> yes. Brad. We have gone like 40 minutes without taking a break yet. We're we're really front loaded on this episode. I think we're in a good place to stop here as we devolve into Charlotte Johansson. Let's try this <laughs> Kavalon whiskey. What do you say? Let's get to it. All right. So today we are checking out Kavalon classic whiskey. Now, Brad, Kavalan is a malt whiskey. It's made completely of malted barley, but it's made in a location that we have never had a whiskey from before, and that is Taiwan. Ooh. The crazy thing about Cavalon is that they have like a, an extensive line of whiskeys now, and they're all pretty expensive. I mean, partially because of where they're importing from, but they're very premium in price. And yet I don't see that much about the brand itself online. Like there's the Kavalon website, and then there's, you know, you can go to like Total Wine and look at all the different Kavalons that you can buy. But it's not like these ridiculous American distilleries now that spring up and they're like... You know, my grandfather was Davy Crockett, and in the olden days, like, there's none of that. So I'm really struggling to find a ton of information about the distillery itself, even though it's it's well-known, it's well-awarded. I don't know. I just want to see the Davy Crockett whiskey that has, like, the coonskin
0: cap <laughs> on the bottle, <laughs> like, has, like, the stopper. Right. <laughs> Oh, man. So what you're saying is you're just vamping because you don't have any information to say about it. I don't. Uh, I think that means we need to just get
1: into the whiskey, Bob, because spoiler alert is delicious, bro. It smells amazing. Uh, This is 43 percent ABV or 86 proof. It is non age stated. I have no idea what that means for Taiwan regulations. I don't know how old this stuff is, but I know that it smells really, really good. Brad, I'm trying it live on air. You've tried it already. Why don't you hit us with your nosing notes while I stick my nose in this glass?
0: Yeah, so this one has like a little bit of peach, a little bit of the the barley definitely comes through. There's honey, there's cherry. And then the the longer you sit with it, you get some stuff I've never gotten on on a whiskey before. It turns almost like a tropical fruit punch, but not like, you know, like red fruit punch Gatorade. Like I- I'm talking like an actual smoothie made with tropical fruits. Mm. I think it's a really fascinating nose. It's not like blowing me out of the water completely, but it's it's got a lot to intrigue me. So I give it an eight out of 10.
1: Yeah, I'm in the same place as you. What I immediately noticed is that this has the fruity brightness of an Irish whiskey. Like as soon as I popped the cork, there was tons of honeydew and like really bright melon, uh, some orange, some lemon zest as well. As it sits in my glass, I get all that, you know, with that nice kind of heathery like an Irish whiskey underneath it. The longer it sits here, the more it's starting to pick up a ton of brown sugar, which is like I, I love that because I never get that on scotch or usually on malted whiskeys. It's very, very warm to go with that sort of like tropical fruit nose. Uh, I, I'm excited for where it's going to go, but I'm with you. I'm going to give it an eight here.
0: Yeah. And then you get into the palate. And Bob, I've never tasted a whiskey that is like so tropical. Mm -hmm. Like it's there's mango, there's, uh, you know, you get your barley and honey. It definitely has some classic scotch feels to it. But the mango and then for me, it turned into this like bright, sweet pineapple juice. Mm -hmm. And I have never had that on a whiskey before, Bob.
1: So (laughs) I used to work at a university that was pretty famous for having a lot of international students in the nursing program, which is the building that I worked in. And we had a Taiwanese student, actually, who graduated and then left a box of these treats with my boss as a thank you for being her mentor or whatever. And my boss didn't want to eat them. And so she was like, here, take them home to your family. And they were these little like pineapple sponge cake treats that are all individually wrapped. And it was (laughs) like, I love how you just like quietly threw your former boss under the bus. I mean, she didn't want the the candy. She just didn't want to eat them. I mean, it was nice of her to not throw them away. She just said, like, hey, I'm not going to eat these. It was a very sweet gesture. I appreciated that she gave them to me. In any case, it was like if you could take a Fig Newton and fill it with, like, upside-down pineapple cake kind of a thing instead. It was – they're incredible. And I've been trying to buy them on Amazon for, like, a year now, but they're really expensive. This is that, dude. It's brown sugar. Uh... It's, like, upside-down pineapple cake slash Fig Newton in a glass. It is so freaking good. I'm going to give it a 9 out of 10 on the taste.
0: Yeah, I'll give it a 9 as well there. I think the finish comes down just a little bit for me. The pineapple kind of citrusy feel sticks around. Uh, the the barley kind of takes over a little bit. It's still a really strong finish, just not quite the heights that the palate had me at. So I'll give it a 7.5.
1: Yeah, I'm in the same place. It gets a little bit smoky on the back end. Not peaty, but there's like a definite Mm. kind of ashiness to it. I think it's fine, and I expect it from a single malt. That's kind of what you get in single malts a lot. But it just doesn't carry the sweetness. It's almost like the sweetness has a cutoff point on your palate. And when you go to swallow, it's like, this is where that journey ends. And from here on out, it is only bitter and smoky. And so I'm with you. I just wish that there was a little bit more of, like, the mingling of those two things. I'll give it a 7 on the finish.
0: Yeah, and balance-wise, I I think that this is a really solidly balanced whiskey that definitely has a high point in the palate. Uh, I'll give it an 8 out of 10 here. I'm going to give it an
1: 8.5. I have no baseline for comparing Taiwanese whiskey to each other. Yeah. For all I know, this is the only whiskey made there. And if this is the only thing they have to offer... It is still darn good. This like the highs are very high. The lows are still pretty high. So it's not like there's like wildly divergent, you know, notes throughout this tasting experience. So I'm going to give it an 8.5. And then that takes us to price. Brad, what were you able to find online about the price of this bottle of whiskey? Uh, you can get this in the United States,
0: not just I don't think it's sold on the shelf in Ohio. You can get it anywhere from like $70 to $100. Usually it's in the $70 to $90, 95
1: range. So I just put $80 for the value. Yeah, that sounds about right. I mean, when I was looking at the Total Wine website earlier, they're selling it for like over $100, but that's way more than I paid for this. And this is, again, one of those ones I got on the last call shelves in Ohio because they no longer sell this particular bottle in Ohio. At $80, Brad... I'm in a weird spot because it's not age stated. It's not like it's high proof. I So I don't know how long it's been aged. I don't know what the process is. It certainly doesn't seem like it was finished in any sort of special barrel. But it's also from an area of the world where they don't make a lot of whiskey or they don't make a lot of whiskey that gets to us. And so I imagine that even just importing it adds a ton of money to this process. I'm going to try to split the difference between saying like, oh, this is only a six out of 10 and this is the best value of all time. I'm going to give it a seven and a half on value.
0: Yeah, I I think that this is an eight out of 10 value. Uh, I'm pretty much with you on a lot of those things, except for the part where I think you just think way too much about value. Mm -hmm. The juice in the bottle is worth $80. It's expensive. That is not cheap. Like, I'm not acting like this is a cheap whiskey. But as far as uniqueness of experience, I don't know if I've had a more unique experience. So I think it's a solid value. If you could get this with a friend and split a bottle, this like spend $40 on a half bottle, I'm 100% in. All
1: right, Brad, that is bringing me out to a 40 out of 50. Where are you at on this one? Uh, I'm at a 40.5. Okay, so we're coming out to a 40.25 on average or an 80 and one half out of 100. Folks, when something hits a 40, it's pretty much a no brainer recommendation. And I I think we can pretty safely start labeling the whiskey as a great whiskey, not just as a very good whiskey or as a personal favorite, but an objectively great bottle of whiskey. And I think this is right there, Brad. Yeah, hundred percent, Bob. This is a
0: whiskey that if you can pick it up, if you can try it at the bar, it is one hundred
1: percent worth it. Go buy it. All right, Brad. Well, from the heights of Cavelon to what may or may not be the depths of the Shining, let's get back into talking about that Stanley Kubrick movie. What do you say? Let's get to it.
0: All right, everybody. That was Cavelon Single Malt Classic, a whiskey that. I, I just, I can't even make a joke about
1: Bob. That was a daggone good. That was, that was really good. It has greatly improved this conversation, I think, Brad. (laughs)
0: Yeah, it has, man. It's crazy. We're, this is going to be one of our longest episodes in a little bit. And it's about a movie (laughs) we don't
1: love. It's super funny too, because we got on tonight and it's later than we normally record and we want to go to bed and we're like, let's just knock this out. Let's go as fast as we can. And here we are and we're just (laughs) getting to the second half of the episode.
0: Oh, man. Well, we do not want to short Canada, their favorite segment, so we'd better get into Two Facts and a Falsehood.
1: Brad is gonna try to stump you ball to our right. and what is wrong? Two Facts and a Falsehood. That's right. Two Facts and a Falsehood, the part of the podcast where Brad presents three items to me as fact about the making of this movie, one of which is a complete lie and fabrication. And I have to figure out which one that is. Brad, how uh, How are you feeling now that I have gotten myself over 500 for the first time in what seems like years? Uh, I feel like a proud dad, Bob. <laughs> you're, you're
0: just doing great. Y- you, like Jack Torrance, love that <laughs> son of a bitch. <laughs> Bob, I think you're doing great. You're You're killing mm. it. You're definitely going to win today. There's no doubt in my mind
1: you're going to win. Oh, my gosh. Why do you do this to me? (laughs) All right, man. Hit me with your two facts and a falsehood. All right. Fact number one, Jack's lack of work
0: ethic was simply stated in the script as, quote, Jack is not working. Nicholson improvised the throwing of the tennis ball and wandering around the hotel based on that line from the script. Hmm. Fact number two, the role of Dick Halloran was offered to two other actors before Scatman Crothers took the part. Bob, this is an aside. Scatman
1: Crothers. Yeah.
0: The best name I'm a in little, the history of Hollywood.
1: I'm a little pissed off that he took my nickname. I have been known as Scatman <laughs> Book for such a long time.
0: <laughs> Scatman Book. And the thing is, like, it fits the way he talks I I can't get over it. Mm. Scatman Crothers, everybody. Scatman. Most famously, Kubrick wanted Sidney Poitier for the role, but was unable to offer him enough money for a smaller part after he had done In the Heat of the Night. Fact number three, one of the actors who played a minor role in the film arrived on set one day carrying a chess set in hopes of getting a few games in during a break from filming. Kubrick, an avid chess player who had in his youth played for money, noticed the chess set, and despite the production being behind schedule, he proceeded to call off filming for the day and engage in a set of games with the actor. Hmm.
1: Good one. This is a good set of falsehoods or facts, Brad. They're all three false. They're <laughs> all <laughs> that That's my secret. Um, okay, <laughs> I'm immediately drawn to two and three as possible falsehoods. Number two, because of your mention of In the Heat of the Night. Because you said he was unable to offer him as much money after he made it In the Heat of the Night. He made it In the Heat of the Night 13 years before this movie came out. So that should not have been breaking news to Stanley Kubrick. Uh, the second one was number three, which I actually think sounds plausible, except for the fact that Kubrick had such a famously, you know, arduous work ethic. And he put people through such misery working. That it seems out of character that he would, like, just not work that day? Hey, he was working, man. Chess is a hard game. <laughs> he was working. You burn burn a lot of calories. Number one might be false, but it just seemed so innocuous that I just skipped right past it. I'm going to go ahead and say number two is the falsehood, Brad. Bob, you killed it, man.
0: That is the falsehood. Yeah! All right. I, in my brain have not stopped thinking that this movie was 1970.
1: (laughs) You know what? And I just mentioned In the Heat of the Night on our last episode as like a movie I had just watched. Yeah, I paired it as my let's make it a double with high and low. And I was like, we've never mentioned that movie once in 300 episodes and now you're mentioning it. So you're getting predictable, man.
0: I legitimately did not remember that you mentioned it. And B was like, yeah, it was like three years before the Shining came out. So like, you know, he can't give him enough money.
1: (laughs) All right, man, let's uh, let's steer out of my huge victory. I mean, that was just I don't know if I've ever so confidently gotten it right before. Yeah. And back into Kubrick, who was also known for his confidence and hubris. And Brad I struggle with Kubrick's movies sometimes, especially in his late period, because the look of his movies is so unique to Kubrick. He always used these wide-angle lenses that made everything look a little bit off-kilter and kind of distorted. And in this movie, I will say, I came into this episode, or into watching the movie for this episode, Like rubbing my palms together and licking my chops because I was like, I get to just delight in crapping on Kubrick for a whole hour. I can't wait. Brad, I really enjoyed this movie this time around (laughs) and I don't know what to do with it. And it it really hit me in a couple areas, the first of which was just the technical craft of this movie. The camera work in this movie is is next level. It's next level, man. Yeah, dude, that that's the one thing that's going to
0: bump my score up is the fact that, yeah, man, the way he moves the camera in this movie is like superb, like Mm -hmm. chef kiss, just beautiful. Mm -hmm. And I hate it. I don't want it to be good, (laughs) (laughs) but like it feels like you're mixing some of the best. Cinematographers of all time mm-hmm. in, in this movie, like you get a ton of great wonders, you get a lot of stuff that Spielberg obviously had to have like not ripped
1: off of but but ripped off he's got yeah. some
0: he's got some Spielberg wonders in here, mm-hmm. and they look incredible
1: mm-hmm. yeah man and like the the way that the lensing I don't know enough about camera lenses, but the wide angle lens has very specific purposes, and i've always i notice it in Kubrick movies, but in this movie in particular. The steady cam had just been invented a few years earlier, and Kubrick was in love with the thing. And this is it's a it's basically a harness that a guy can wear that has like a gimbal in it, and it allows people to move, like to walk with a camera, but it holds the camera so steady that it looks like it's just kind of gliding. And it's famously the one that was used by Scorsese in that long tracking shot in Goodfellas. And Kubrick uses it like 90% of the movie here, every time that they're following around Danny as he rides his little big wheel around the the hotel. Mm-hmm. And every time that someone's going around a corner, it's the way the camera pivots around corners. It looks so weird. But then I pressed pause and I had to go pee in the middle of this movie. And I walked up the stairs and I was turning corners and I noticed like, oh my gosh, it really does approximate. How like how perspectives change in 3D so well that it made me really afraid of my own house in the in the middle of the day today, Brad. (laughs) Like the camera work is exceptional in this movie. Yeah, that that
0: is the one thing that I will say. This movie is a perfect example of camera work, Mm -hmm. like like a top three, top five cinematography film of all time. And I didn't want it to be that good, (laughs) but. Especially if you want to look at a film and study how camera work can increase tension Mm -hmm. and increase a feeling of dread. The Shining is like your
1: your masterpiece. Well, and that was that was my second thing. And it gets us into one of our other categories that we will be evaluating Kubrick by. And that's the editing of this movie. Not not necessarily him sitting down with his editor and the cuts within each scene. But the way the movie as a whole is put together feels 20 years ahead of its time. There were not those sort of like hard cuts to chapter titles the way you get in movies all the time now. And the first time you get a black screen and these white titles that say like The Interview, I'm like, oh, I forgot this movie had these these chapter titles. Mm-hmm. It feels so modern. But then on top well, of it, that. It he,
0: also alludes to the. The. The adaptation from the a novel, The right? source material, sure, yeah. absolutely.
1: But there's also, he does such a good job of using the camera work in conjunction with all the music he chose for this movie to create such, like, this movie is all tone and all mood. And from the very beginning, you're like, this, I feel uneasy. The mood, the tone here is, like, really mm-hmm. effective. And I, like, you never don't feel off kilter when you're watching this movie and the score to this movie i think most of it is pre-existing music that kubrick chose it's so eerie and it's like really unsettling and it's just kind of pitch perfect man i have to give the guy credit because this movie could feel really dated being 43 years old and it feels very much like the kind of movie that could have gotten made yesterday with good cinematography, un- unlike modern movies. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, I, I'm with you, man. I think that the music is incredibly well done. The The soundtrack, I would say, because it's not always music. I, I think that the, the voices in the soundtrack are always used to like startling and, and just super creepy effect. Mm-hmm. Uh, We already talked. I think that the opening little chord progression that he gives you is is just like perfect. I think that my main issues with this movie lie in Jack Nicholson's performance. Mm. I just I couldn't get away from it being Jack Nicholson. He didn't feel immersed in the film. He just kind of felt like he was doing his own own thing the Mm. entire time. And so the the more I think about this the more we we talk about it the more I'm like you know I actually liked a ton of this film I hate the the horror elements of it but that's just me it, it, honestly it reminds me of like when you're watching the Great British baking show and you see the judges tell the contestant like oh yeah I hate that flavor but then they end up giving that contestant like star baker Mm hmm. And and it's like that element of like as a judge, you have to recognize I don't like this flavor, but this is a great example of what this flavor could be. Yep. And I think
1: that's kind of where I'm at with this movie, Bob. A hundred percent, man. I'm and I I have to say my estimation of this movie, like skyrocketed after this watch through. It's a really effective movie. Do I think it's perfect? Absolutely not. I think the last twenty five minutes really kind of fall off a cliff. In terms of like tension building and and Nicholson is so over the top and hammy at that point that it's like watching a Looney Tunes character run around with a mallet. You know what I mean? Like it's very (laughs) Elmer Fudd chasing Bugs Bunny. And uh, and so there's there's elements to it that don't really work for me. And yet I have to give Kubrick credit, man. This is clearly the work of a master. Which pains me to say, man, I really wanted to have my hot take machine fired up today and just crap on Kubrick. (laughs) But, Brad, I think we're in a pretty good place to get into our final segment of the day, which we call... Let's make it a double. We're near the end of the episode, so thanks for listening to the film and whiskey show. Let's pair another film with this one, even if it's a struggle. It's the final segment of the day, now let's make it a double. Let's make it a double is the part of the show where we pair this movie up with another one to make the perfect double feature. Brad, I'll just turn it over to you, man. What are you pairing The Shining up with? Oh, man. I like I don't know if I've ever had a harder time pairing
0: a movie with another mostly because like this just is not my bailiwick like it's so far out of what I enjoy when I think about movies that make me uncomfortable and I think about movies that are still worth watching which I don't know if I would say The Shining is but I actually I talked about it earlier and it's stuck in my brain since I'm actually gonna pair this with Whiplash Hmm. I think that, you know, thematically of Kubrick as a director, paired with what's happening in in the actual text of Whiplash, I think that you can glean a lot from one movie to the next. And honestly, I just think people
1: need to watch Whiplash more often. So go watch Whiplash after you watch The Shining. Brad, for my Let's Make It a Double, I'm going to talk about a pretty recent movie that is not a horror movie at all, but it is supernatural. It's a movie called A Ghost Story. It was one of my absolute favorite movies of the year, the year that it came out. It stars Casey Affleck and Rooney Mara, and it is a story, literally, about a guy who dies, becomes a ghost, and there is this theme in the movie that once he dies and becomes a ghost, he kind of, uh, it's almost like he gets rooted to the spot he died in, and he goes on this almost like time travel journey where his spirit is connected to this place, and you see him going through like the whole history of this spot that he died on. And it reminded me so much of that when I was watching the shining and how these spirits are tied to this place forever. And I think it's a better movie in a lot of ways than the shining, or at least one that has stuck with me in more ways. I think it'd be a really fascinating pairing. If you're going the supernatural route and you want a a cool little indie movie to watch a ghost story, Bob, that is a fascinating movie pick. Mm. As all my movie picks are, Brad. Mm. Uh, yeah, let's get into final scores. I was going to try to vamp for a minute, but I think we're in a good spot and we're <laughs> running long today. So I'm tired, I'm going to give this movie an eight and a half out of ten. I don't think it's perfect, but I think that it is a great example of horror made by a person who knows what he's doing. Do I think that yeah. he's the best horror director? Not really. Like, I actually think that there are a lot of genre directors That could have made this a scarier movie, but I don't think it would be as interesting of a movie if it wasn't for Kubrick.
0: Yeah, this is one of those films where the only reason I would recommend people watch it is just to see like a technical masterpiece. Hmm. Here's the deal, though, Bob. I don't watch movies for their technicality. I watch them to be inspired or to be entertained. Hmm. I was neither inspired nor entertained in this film. I will give it a 7 out of 10.
1: I'm going to be honest, dude. I think that you giving it a 7 is the the Brad G grading on a curve equivalent <laughs> of giving it a 10. Like, yes, I did not expect that score to be that high, man.
0: Bro, I could have given this movie, like, a 4. Mm-hmm. If I'm being blunt, like, I could have given it a 4. But through even as I was watching it, even as I, like, just took a break because I couldn't handle it anymore... I was like, I've never seen somebody move the camera like this. Mm-hmm. Like,
1: <laughs> it's just so good. Was it effective? Like, did it did it get under your skin? Oh, yeah. Well, so here's the other reason
0: I would give it a lower score. I think that the middle third of the movie, which focuses a lot more on like Creepy horror supernatural elements Mm -hmm. Got under my skin Mm -hmm. I don't mess with that stuff man I Like you you can take that And take it as far away from me as you want The last Third of the film and you know the first third Is a setup you don't need a lot of supernatural stuff For it to be a horror film Mm -hmm. The last third of the film though You mentioned this earlier The ghosts aren't really ghosts Like yeah you know one guy kind of has a Bloody head but For the most part, they're just normal actors that look normal. And Jack just turns into a caricature. Mm -hmm. So there's actually, like, nothing really scary in the final third of the film. And so that, like, that was definitely something for me where I was like, oh, this
1: actually isn't that scary anymore. Like, we kind of got all that out of the way. Mm -hmm. All right, Brad, I think that's all there is to say about The Shining. And when I say that, that's absolutely not all there is to say. This movie has inspired... Hundreds and thousands of fan theories about what it really means and what the what Kubrick was hiding and coded messages. There's a whole documentary called <laughs> Room 237 where all the conspiracies about what The Shining is about uh, fills out an entire feature-length documentary. So if you're interested in diving into The Shining a little bit more, you can watch that. We are not going to because we are going I, to pivot. Go ahead, Brad. I have one last question for you, Bob. Yeah.
0: Uh, it's a sexually explicit question. Are you ready? hmm Why is there a man in a pig costume giving another guy oral sex at the end of the film?
1: I will never understand. I think it's just, like, <laughs> all of the hotel's, like, most disturbing little secrets come out at the end of the movie. And so he threw in, like, this seedy, you know? But also, like, of all the things that you could have represented on screen of, like, what... What evil was going on here? Like a furry? Like, really? That's where you want to go with this? Like, <laughs> I don't know, man. I don't know.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I was just like, once again, it hit the point where I was like,
1: I'm not even scared anymore. I just, I just don't know what's going on. I don't, I don't understand this at all. <laughs> all right. So, from the weird bear man to. A completely different movie. We're going back in time a little bit to Kubrick's 1964 Cold War comedy classic, Dr. Strangelove, next week. Brad, I think you will enjoy that movie significantly more than The Shining. (laughs) But we will see you next week for that. Until then, I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And we'll see you next time.